Hey, we're in the series right now called Pathfinder. And um, the, the whole point of this is to explore how we become disciples of Jesus. And at Thrive, we talk about very specifically this idea of a pathway. And, and a lot of this comes out of a, it was a blog post about five or six years ago. There's a guy named uh, Ed Stetzer, who's a Christian researcher, and he, he made a, a comment in a blog post that we, we talk a lot about being disciples, but there's no real pathway for discipleships in, in very much of American Christianity. And so we wanted to kind of hit the pause button on that and say, mm, you know, when, when Thrive gets rolling here, we want to make sure that we've got a pathway to discipleship. And so um, this pathway has three parts uh, or three aspects. It's worship, um, grow, and, and serve. And, and our general consensus is that our general feeling is on this that if you're engaged in those three areas in some way uh, every single week or regularly, then you're probably on a pathway towards Jesus, which is a good thing. And so these are the, the areas of, of focus. There's only probably a certain number of ways that you can slice and dice this. Maybe you can think of different words or maybe some additions. But generally speaking, most of what the church does, most of what we do as Christians fall into one of those kind of categories. And so today we're going to be talking about, about worship. So um, if you remember the uh, first um, a Sunday of the new year, we talked about having a theme for the year, allowing Jesus to, to work with you to find that thing in your discipleship that, that you're going to work on together uh, for at least the next year, maybe less, maybe a little bit longer. And then uh, last week we talked very um, seriously about what it, what it meant to be a disciple back when Jesus was making disciples in that whole context. And so we get kind of this um, uh, context for it, this, this, this robust understanding of what a disciple actually is. And so now we're going to focus on these aspects of, our, of the pathway that we have here at Thrive Church. And, and so worship is really foundational to all of our faith practice. It, it really is. In fact, um, most of the time if you talk to people in, about worship and you get kind of the nod, oh yeah, it's, it's really important. And and, uh, and so I, I think it's important, and, and, and I, I got to tell you a funny story. When I, when I started this um, study, I have to admit, I walked into it with, a, with an expectation. No, it wasn't an expectation. It was an assumption. Well, I'm just going to be honest. It was a complete assumption. I assumed something. I assumed that if I opened up the, the New Testament, specifically one of the four Gospels, one of the four bio, biographies of Jesus, that when I, when, I, when I looked at how the disciples interacted with Jesus, that the disciples would be worshiping Jesus all the time. And, and the, the phrase that stuck in my head is, and they fell down and worshiped him, right? And I thought, okay, so let's, let's go to the text and let's find a, a, an example of this where I can, I can jump off and I can... I can uh, I can talk about this kind of worship. Um, well, the, the one that came to my mind was the transfiguration. It's in Matthew chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this to you because this is, this is just fascinating to me. This is really funny. Um, Matthew chapter 17. Some of you can see where this is going, right? Okay, hold on. After six days, Jesus took um, with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Can you imagine this? Right? So they go up onto a mountain, 
And they have this dramatic event where Jesus starts glowing, apparently. And then Moses and Elijah show up, just hang out for a little bit. And <laughs> Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it, it is good for us to be here. Yeah, you just, you, you got a, a glimpse into, into glory, something, something fierce. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is, I love what Peter's attitude is here. He's like, well, if you're going to stick around, should we like pitch some tents or something? Go get tacos? Or, I mean, what, what should we be doing here? Because you're, you're seeing this dramatic event, and he, what else do you do? I mean, I, love, I just love Peter's humanity here, just the, the beauty of all of this. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Are you kidding? When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, all right, you have this kind of dramatic effect, glowing Jesus, great figures in history, voice of God himself. If you think there was any moment in time when the disciples would fall down and worship, it would be then, right? But the text doesn't tell us that. It says that they fell face down in what? Terror. <laughs> I thought... Okay, well, that blows that springboard for the message. <laughs> and then I, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me do a little bit of digging here. I found out something truly extraordinary. Um, when, you, when you look at this story of the transfiguration, it appears in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark is probably the source because it was written first. So Matthew and Luke often borrow from Mark. And in none of those stories do the disciples worship. None of them at all, which is interesting to me. And then, as I did a little more digging, and you look up just that phrase, and they worshiped him, Jesus is only worshiped three times by, his, by well, anybody. One is at his birth, when the Magi from the East, they're not even Jewish. They show up, and they worship him. The other time is after his resurrection, the disciples worship. That makes sense, right? There's a certain amount of, of uh, logic to that. And the, other, the only other time that they actually worshiped him is in Matthew, when Jesus and Peter are walking on the water. And Jesus gets back in the boat, and they had just witnessed this incredible thing, and they worshipped him, is what the text says. That's it. Didn't actually worship at other times. And I, I have to admit, that, that rather surprised me, because I thought I was going to find his disciples worshiping him all over the place. That was what was in my head. You see, we all bring a certain amount of assumptions uh, with us to the text, especially when it comes to worship. We have certain ideas about worship. We think we get it, and then God reveals something new or different or 
very often God reveals something more, which challenges kind of those assumptions, which I think is a good thing. I think that's healthy, and I think that's part of being a disciple. You know, if I can kind of hit the pause button again and just say, you know, sometimes um, when you when you prepare a message and when you prepare a sermon as a pastor, you, 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 you get a certain idea um, and you, you, you put it together and you don't really know why. It's just kind of an unknown reason why it's all there and why you're delivering it. Sometimes you know it's for the congregation or for a particular group in the congregation. And, and then there are other messages. The pastor preaches because he needs to hear it. This message is one of those. And so I want to offer some thoughts based on what I'm learning. Please understand, I don't, I don't have this figured out yet. I'm still trying to understand this really big idea of worship. And I hope that this exploration is going to be helpful to, to every one of us. And I think that's all that this is, is just an initial exploration. In fact, we probably ought to do a series on worship. Right, Pastor Dan? He's nodding his head vigorously. Yes. So there are lots of definitions of worship. And if I asked each one of you, you would probably um, have your own definition. So I, I did what any good academic does. I, I go to a dictionary. This is from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. Worship, the service of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and petition directed toward God through actions and attitudes offered to God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's a big definition, right? But there are some very important pieces to this, and I think that it's a very very solid place to start. Um, I don't think this is the only definition. I just happen to like this um, because there's a couple of, of features to this definition that I think are worth us pulling apart. And, and I think there are two really big ideas tucked in here. And it comes down to uh, worship being connected to actions and attitudes. Okay, so we have the service of some type of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and petition directed towards God, right, through specific actions and attitudes. You have to have those those two components, and I think the distinction between those is very, very helpful, and I'll explain why here in a minute. So let's talk about attitude first. I'm going to take them in reverse order. Attitude. Sometimes you, um, it might be better, instead of calling it our attitude or worship, but our posture. Our posture of, of worship, uh, I think, is a, is a way to, to do this, and it's how we think about God. Um, there's a, a gentleman... Um, he was a professor emeritus at Wheaton College, and he, he wrote this. He said, worship is acknowledging that someone um, or something, sorry, someone or something else is greater, worth more, and by consequence is to be obeyed, feared, and adored. Okay? So understand that worship at its very part, the very basic attitude to have is acknowledging the fact that there is somebody who is bigger than you are right? That, um, that there is someone else in the driver's seat. And if you grew up in the church, is God still on the throne? And you're not, <laughs> right? But it's that basic acknowledgement that there is someone greater, and because he is greater, he is uh, to be obeyed, feared, and of course, this last part is to be is, is adored. 
I think that's a really helpful um, way of, of picking apart, apart this because it gets at this added attitude. And, uh, and it's also close to the, the, the meaning of, of worship. Um, if you were to look it up in like the Oxford English Dictionary, which is like, you know, this big, um, worship comes from two other old English phrases, worth scribe, which means to ascribe worth or value to something. And you kind of get that idea here, here too, that there is something greater and therefore is, is more valuable. Um, uh, you're ascribing worth or, or you're claiming God's value. Here's what the poet says, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all kings. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Interesting that even back thousands of years ago, people acknowledged the fact that God was bigger than they were. We acknowledge who God is, certainly, but also from what we can see here, also for what he has done and those are two big pieces of, of worship when you're acknowledging the greatness of God. It's not just who he is, but it's also the things that he has done. And I, and I wonder, too, if, if attitude also includes another word, expectancy. You know, do we expect God to do his thing? Do we expect that the God that we read about in the Bible actually does those same things today? Do we, do we? Okay, it's one thing to believe that. It's another to expect that. Do you see the difference? Because sometimes I think what we do is go, oh yeah, yeah, that was great back then. But what about today? What about now? What about the adventure that goes on? Are we expecting about it? And do we expect to meet, meet with God when we come to church? Do we expect that? Because I think sometimes um, things live up to our expectations. We actually, you know, create that reality by simply, you know, expecting or not expecting God to be there, God to meet with us, God to, to do what only he can do, okay? So attitude, I think, is an important piece of this. Here's the next one. It's action. The actions or the activity, we could say, about that. <clears throat> Worship includes some type of an external component, too. We do something when we worship. In fact, we often talk about... Um, uh, how we might be able to uh, include what we call them interactives, you know, get people up out of their chairs and doing something. Um, uh, community is a great example of this. Uh, we want people to do things when they worship. That's why we sing and all of that. Um, Constance Cherry uh, is another um, worship <clears throat> uh, uh, thinker, and uh, she wrote this: Worship is is organized and directed action. To God. Remember that, that first definition we saw. It's, it's directed towards God. This picks up on that. Worship is organized, number one, and directed action to God through our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I think this is helpful too because it's all directed towards God, <clears throat> but it, uh, and it's organized, which I thought was really, really kind of helpful. But make no mistake, it is some type of an action. And um, the picture that comes to my mind here is in Revelation chapter 7. 
Uh, let me see if I can read this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember, this is a vision of the future that the Apostle John is seeing. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. For me, that's a great picture of this idea of active worship. They're falling down, they're, they're saying things, and they're, there's, there's this, this kind of movement, this kind of kinetic energy that's going on inside when you read, read this. Um, and we recognize this as activity for worship, I think. Now, there are obvious actions that we, that we do. Uh, we gather together, we sing, we pray, we give, we serve, we do those um, types of activities when we worship. But, but I think there are other actions too. In fact, I think with the right attitude, <laughs> our daily lives can be acts of worship. Does that make sense? That just this idea that the work that I'm, I'm doing, the craft that I'm called to do, what I do for a living, how I interact with my family and friends and my neighbors and the people at the grocery store or wherever, those types of activities that we do when done with an attitude, acknowledge that God is greater and I am just the conduit of his love and grace and I think that is an act of worship. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, right? If we do this with that kind of attitude, then worship becomes a lifestyle, which I think is what we're ultimately after. Worship is not just something that we gather to do corporately. We also do it individually, and we can do it even within the groups like our families um, or with our uh, small groups or with our friends. Worship becomes a lifestyle. That's helpful. But I, th I think um, that there might be a third aspect that our, our working definition from the Westminster Dictionary theolo of Theological Terms might miss. Um, uh, and uh, I want you to listen to the poet here. Here's what the poet has to say. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Some of you might be familiar with another translation that says, uh, yet you are holy, you inhabit the praises of your people. The way the Hebrew is constructed here, you can, you can translate this in a number of different ways. But you who are only, you are enthroned upon the praise of your people. You inhabit the praise of your people. There is a relationship between the praise that we give and the location of God. Hear that, okay? So there's a connection between those two things. You are enthroned. You inhabit the praise of people. Now, there's, 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 there's a debate around how you, how you translate that, but I think you've got to understand that there's this relationship between praise and the location of, of where, where God actually is. How about Jesus' words himself? You know, let's, let's go to the source, shall we? Let's go right to that one. Matthew chapter 18. Again, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask it, ask, it shall be done for them. 
by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, what does it say? I am there in their midst. Where two or more are gathered, there I am also. It's another translation. You know, we've heard this. Uh, a lot of us have. And so when we worship, Jesus is present. Did you hear me? When we worship, Jesus is present. Now, here's the thing. He's really present. I mean, like, really. Like, right here. Like, right now. Like, he's here. He's, like, sitting next to you. Like, for reals. (laughs) Okay? He's walking our aisles. He's singing our songs. He is enthroned on the praises of his people. He is with us because we are gathered in his name. He's here. And so the third aspect that I think is so important to our worship is awareness. Isn't it great that it starts with the letter A? Yes, because we have attitude, we have action, and now we have awareness, and it works out. But I think what's more important here is is that it's like expectancy. Are we aware that he's here? Do we walk in the door, and do we expect him to be here? And if he is, are we aware that he's here? Because those are two different things too, right? Constance Cherry is a practical theologian. I mentioned her before. She makes a very uncomfortable point. This one caused me to squirm a little bit. If Jesus is present in our worship, it changes everything. I want you to think about that. We can no longer put on a nice program and hope that people like it. We must declare the presence of the risen and living Lord. Risen and living, right? The tomb's still empty, as far as I know. If he's risen, that means he's still here. He leads our worship, but he also receives our worship at the same time. But make no mistake, he's here right now. Now here's my question. What attitude and action do we want him to experience with us? This, this is where it got really uncomfortable for, for me, personally. What songs do we want him to sing with us? What do we want him to see as we're praising? What would, it, what would we like the risen Lord to pray with us Because it says in Hebrews that he intercedes on our behalf before the throne. What conversations do we want him to hear if he's here? Kind of changes perspective, doesn't it? Just a little bit. I think for me, this idea of worship I've been missing is this awareness. Because, you know, there's this notion that when Jesus was on earth, he ascended into heaven, right? We've read that. It's at the end of Luke. It's also in the book of Acts. We see this, you know, kind of miraculous sort of thing. And, and I always have this picture of all the disciples, you know, gaping up, kind of like that, you know, mouths open. And there he goes. 
But there's, a, there's this idea that, yes, he is in the th- throne room because he sits at the right hand of the Father, but also <laughs> he is still the God-man. And because of that, not only is he there, he is also here through his Spirit in real time. Are you, are you following me? Because I mean, that's a big concept to understand that he's up there, but he's also here. And I think... I think for me, it was really easy to miss that because you know what? I know that God is greater. I know that I am not God. Just ask my kids. They'll tell you, right? My dog knows that, right? I'm not God. And I know that he's worthy of my my offering. And, And I'll be honest, church planning is messy business. It really is. It's easy to get lost in the details. It's easy to get distracted. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think that my worship has gotten complacent, but I think my worship has gotten distracted. We do church fairly well, all of us. We all know how because a lot of us have trained because we've been in the church for so long. But when you, without the attitude, without the acknowledgement of who God is, then we're just kind of going through the motions. And it's just kind of empty, I think. If you want the $5 word, it's perfunctory. Just mechanical, just something that we do. And frankly, we, we know God's Spirit is with us, right? I mean, we've heard this a lot, right? We, we understand that God's Spirit is with us. Yes, I believe that. I'm a good Wesleyan. I believe in provenient grace. I believe that the Holy Spirit is always active everywhere. But there's one thing to believe that, and there's something else to live in that reality, do you see that difference? That it's one thing to, to acknowledge that in my head and go, yeah, 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 Spirit's right here. And it's something else entirely to go, he's right here next to me as if he is a real person because he is a real person. Those are two totally different things. What would it be like to live, live as, as, as if Jesus lived in your, in your house, rode with you to work in your car, sat in your classroom or in your office, or how about even your cubicle? I'm going to find out. I want to know what it's like to live that way. I want to find that out. I want to learn what that is. And I'm still learning. And while there's a lot of work to do to get a church off the ground, I know a couple of things. First of all, we're not going to get everything right. I know we haven't, but we're not going to get everything right. But there's, there's one thing that we must get right, and it's this. It's worship of acknowledging that God is, and God is greater, and acting that way, and then being aware of the fact that he is present and allowing that to shape us as followers of Jesus. And so we are simply believers gathered in his name, which means that he's here, and we're declaring that he is resurrected and that he is with us even in this very second. Very easy to kind of push that off and say, oh, that's kind of theoretical, but it's not. 
It's living into that kind of reality. That's what worship actually is, is when we have those three elements, not just we're here doing what we're doing. It's not even just this mental, intellectual ascent of God, but it's also being aware of the fact that he's here, that he's with us, that he has something to say, and he has ideas for our lives and our, our discipleship to become more like Jesus, to help him push back the darkness and our